title of this session is Preaching to the Unchurched. I really don't like that title because um, it, it just sounds, the, the very title sounds sort of oldie worldy, Preaching to the Unchurched. Well, what, we don't, it, it just doesn't really make sense to talk about the unchurched much anymore because there, there's so many of them, it's more the church to are the kind of curious people. Do, do, do you see what I mean? I've tried to think of a different way of putting the title. I haven't been able to come up with anything yet. But um, it's a kind of title that's left over from a a previous generation when the unchurched were a sort of small, obvious group in in society. And uh, it's just not like that anymore. Um, Preaching to an average group of people, uh, that might be a bit more accurate. Um, I've got a a statistic um, off the web. I think it's... um, well-researched, um, from what I could tell, 30% of people in England, uh, it was England as opposed to Britain, um, but it probably applies to Scotland and Wales as well, 30% have little or no experience of attending church. Um, not surprisingly, that figure is on the rise. And if you, br- if you try and break it down, I mean, unfortunately, the... Um, statistic wasn't broken down by age group. But uh, if you think about it, the 70% of people who have had experience of church, they are, I mean, I'd have thought that's, that's going to be the more elderly people, middle-aged elderly people who did go to Sunday school. Um, if, you, if you just took the 50 and above, for example, well, I think it's fair to say you'd be looking at, I don't know, 50, 60, 70% of them um, 80%, 90% having, having church backgrounds. What I'm trying to say is, 30 and under, I would guess that statistic is more like 50%. Little or no experience of, of church. That would be my guess for, for, for 30s and under. We're, we're talking about the majority of people in our generation, the, the up-and-coming generation, just have no real experience of going to church, and um, with that, they know very little indeed about the the Christian faith. Uh, No instinctive allegiance to Christianity. I mean, if if, if you grow up going to church fairly regularly, Sunday school, you know a Sunday school teacher, even if you don't buy into it, you've still got an instinctive allegiance to the Christian faith from, from your background. Well, this majority of people 30 and under, just don't have that at all. So, no experience of what it's like to to go into a church, complete ignorance of of the Christian faith, and no instinctive allegiance to it. It's just something to to roll around in our heads, isn't it? 50% of uh, the under 30s just don't know where they're coming from at all in Britain. In the, um, in the 19th century, people used to talk about the heathen, um, by which they meant against people in Asia, Africa, elsewhere, who just w- were untouched by Christianity. Well, I, mean, I, don't, I don't particularly like that word, but you could use that accurately of 50% of the under-30s heathen in, in Britain today. Well, should that affect our evangelistic preaching? 
And, uh, and if so, what, what exactly needs to change? That's really where we're, where we're going this morning. Um, I want to start by being very clear on, on something just to reassure everybody. Um, whatever cultural situation we find ourselves in, in um, Britain in 2009, we're not to tamper with the basic content of our message. So that's not what I'm going to be suggesting in uh, this talk. The core has to remain the same. Paul tells Timothy uh, in 2 Timothy 1.13, what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. What you heard from me, keep. And Jude commands, contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. There are different once for alls in the Bible, aren't there? But that once for all is a once for all time. Contend for the faith that was once for all time entrusted to the saints. Um, speakers must communicate the unchanging truth of the gospel, however much or little the listeners might have heard. We've, we've got to get this across, this unchanging message. We've got to keep what Paul taught as our message. And that means, as I said just in the, in the question and answer session, we need to think through for ourselves and take hold for ourselves of what the core content of the gospel really is. What do you need to get across to be confident that your hearers have heard the words of eternal life? We just need to think that through for ourselves. So, for example, we'd all say, I hope, that we need to preach Christ crucified. We need to put the blood on the wood, as Vinnie would say. That's a Vinnie phrase. Put the blood on the wood. But, what about the resurrection? Do you need to communicate that piece of information that Jesus was raised from the dead if you're trying to tell people the gospel? If you've explained the cross, do you, do you actually need to, to, to mention the resurrection? Because if it is part of the, the core, it, it needs to be there every time. If it is part of the core, if it's an essential. Um, if, you, if you leave it out and it's an essential... When you're in your car driving home, you, you can't say to yourself, I preached the gospel. Because you left something out that was part of the core. For what it's worth, I'd say, um, I mean, I'm, I'm saying we all need to work out for ourselves what these core elements are. For what it's worth, I'd say, yes, it, it is an essential. I don't think you necessarily have to spend much time on it, but surely it must be part of the core content. Because if you don't preach the resurrection, where's Jesus at the end of the talk? He's still dead. You're leaving him dead. In the minds of your hearers, he's still horizontal. And how can someone save you if, if they're horizontal and six feet under? So there's a, there's a core content to the gospel. We need to sort it out in our heads and then make sure that, that core, those core elements are present in all of our gospel talks. What you heard from me, Paul says, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. But here's the, the point uh, for, for this session. There are countless different ways to package that core content. And this is where we need to work very hard at adapting our material, our core material, to fit the culture 
that uh, we find ourselves in, adapting the packaging, sorry, of our core material to fit the culture that we find ourselves in. The packaging in Britain today, the packaging needs to be suitable for unchurched people, people who don't have any idea what we're going on about. So, let me give you an example of what I mean. Here's the uh, introduction of a, of a 19th century evangelistic talk. Actually, this is a, this is a Moody, uh, D.L. Moody introduction. Um, some people are always making it, this is a very introduction. I haven't said anything before this paragraph. I won't do the American accent. But some people are always making excuses for not doing their duty, and especially for not coming to Christ. If I ask you to come to Christ you'd be ready to give some excuse for not accepting the invitation. I never saw an unsaved man in my life who didn't have some excuse. Never. And if you don't have one ready, Satan will be right by you to help you to make one. He's good at that sort of thing. That's been his occupation the last 6,000 years. Helping men to make excuses. Well, that was, that was gripping at the time. Gripping in the 19th century. Hmm? I quite like that now. Yeah, well, well, we we would quite like that now. But for for an unchurched person, I don't like the term, but I'll carry on using it. For an unchurched person, there's so much in that 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 is just alienating, needlessly alienating, and would put them off. There are about six things, I think. Um, So he assumes that people will generally accept that it's their duty to come to Christ very first sentence. Well, what does it mean to come to Christ? Who's Christ? And why is it my duty? What are you talking about? And then, um, if I asked you to come to Christ, you'd be ready to give some excuse for not accepting the invitation. Same problems as the first sentence. I never saw an unsaved man in my life who didn't have some excuse. Never. Well, that's quite sort of man-centred, as in male-centred, and you don't have to do that these days. That's going to alienate quite a lot of the women needlessly um, in the audience. Um, if you don't have one ready, Satan will be right, right, right. Satan. What? you like the devil. Why, why have I come here tonight? In your introduction, that's quite strong to be talking about Satan. Um, he's good at that sort of thing. That's been his occupation for the last 6,000 years. Okay, so you're saying the world's only been going for 6,000 years. Again, that's probably what we all believe, but in your introduction, in your packaging, you know, you're, you're, the, 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 you're not even onto the core yet. You haven't got into any of your core gospel truths. And you're leaving people thinking, what is this guy going on about? Where has he come from? They're, they're feeling alienated and they're put off before you've got onto any of your core gospel truths. And we don't need to do that. We can change the packaging. We're free to change all of that. Um, and I'm convinced that if, if the Moody was, was with us today, he'd keep his same core content, but change the packaging. He'd have a completely different introduction to, uh, to that talk on, on excuses. Um, so, so the rest of this talk will be dealing with how we, we package the core gospel when we're preaching to unchurched people. Which, as I said before, means just, just an average group of British people. But, but just before we get on to the, the nitty-gritty, I want to say a bit more about why we need to think hard about um, packaging. I know I've already 
sort of had a go at persuading me of that, but I just really want to persuade you of the need to, to do this work on the packaging, um, just in case you're not persuaded yet. If you think back to John's talk on Hudson Taylor, if you remember that um, excellent talk, you'll remember that we heard that when Hudson Taylor began preaching, um, he was wearing European dress. He could speak Chinese at that time. He, he could communicate the gospel to people in their language. But as John said, he reached the end of a sermon and they would start pointing at his clothes and asking about the buttons. And um, John said, didn't you? He didn't see anyone converted while he was wearing European clothes. So he's using their language, which they can understand, communicating the gospel. It gets into their heads. They can understand, they get it. And yet they don't get it because there's a cultural barrier in the way. Just his clothes. Hudson Taylor. And not one Chinese person saved until he started wearing the gear. Um, I've also heard uh, from, from more than one missionary that if you use the, uh, the general language for um, a land, for, for, a, for a, an area, rather than the actual language spoken, mother tongue kind of language spoken by a tribe, their, their, their dialect, if it's a strong form of dialect, um, they, they don't see people saved. Now again, that tribe speaks the, the general language used by all the different tribes in a particular land or, or, or a large area. They can understand the words. They, they know what you're saying. But there's a cultural barrier in the way because it's not coming to them in their mother tongue. It's not coming to them in the language of their, their own tribe. And missionary after missionary will say that you have to do the homework and learn the actual language or, or dialect spoken by that tribe before people come to faith. It's, it's not an understanding problem. It's a cultural problem that's keeping the gospel at one remove from, from hearts and minds. It really seems to be the case that the cultural barriers can stop the seed from penetrating the soil. And, and so to get the seed into the soil, we need to be sensitive to these cultural barriers. Now, let's turn to the Bible to see an example of this uh, principle in the Bible. Um, Acts chapter 16, verse uh, 1, please. chapter 16, verse 1. He came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area. So you've got um, Paul and Silas are together at this stage, and, uh, and Timothy is joining in 
and, uh, and they, they have a staff meeting. And the, on the agenda is, should Timothy be circumcised? I bet he voted against. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no yawning in that staff meeting. There's no, there's no looking out of the window and thinking about what you're going to have to There's full concentration as they discuss this point on the, on the agenda. And the, but the point is, Paul thinks it's necessary to deal with this cultural barrier. You see, if you are purely focusing on Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. If you are purely focusing on that, you might well say at that staff meeting, particularly if you're Timothy, Paul, you know, don't bother getting out the Stanley knife. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Just, we can just tell people the gospel. A little bit of skin. Surely that is not going to get in the way of the gospel. Well, Paul thought it was serious enough as a cultural barrier that he went ahead and circumcised Timothy. And if you want to get a sense of how agonising that would have been, read Genesis chapter 34, which which talks about that. Um, It's the kind of thing that you only do if it's necessary if Timothy were here, were here, he would say, it's the kind of thing you only do <laughs> if it's necessary. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm, this principle, I'm, it's, I'm sure it's very familiar to you. We all agree, I think, that it was a good step for Hudson Taylor to take to, to get into Chinese clothes. Um, but I've been, go, I've been going over this familiar ground because um, although I think we would apply this principle if we were in Hudson Taylor's shoes... Um, I'm not so sure that we see the need to to think through this principle in our own culture, in Britain, when it comes to regular British people. Because um, we're we're so close to them culturally. But there is a gap. There is a gap between us as Christian believers and our experiences and what's what's, uh, in our minds and, and thinking and what we chat about with one another. There is a gap between us and regular British people, um, these many, many unchurched people in, in Britain today. Can I, uh, can I just ask something at this point? I, I do remember a guy working for London City Mission who was the most untrendy middle-aged bloke. His trousers were too short. He always wore really awful shirts and things. And he worked with youth. And I remember looking at him once thinking, how is he going to reach them? He's just not trendy at all. He had the most amazing ministry amongst mm. kids. And there is an element of me that thinks, uh, you know, if, if people can, if they've got a need, and if they can look at him and think, well, why, why is he not bothered about how he dresses? There obviously is something more to his life than worrying about the external, which is a big problem in the West. Then it must be the power of the gospel rather than trying to somehow... With, with kids, it's, it's slightly different to adults, though, because kids can be very accepting of people. <coughs> you often ask a kid who their favourite teacher is, and it's the, the, you know, the oldest, kind of most miserable-looking kind of person, but because they've got a sense of humour, they love them. Mm-hmm. You know? Whereas when you get older, I think, as, a, as, a, as an unchurched person in the UK, you get very much more kind of solid in your, you know, kind of what we're talking about. I mean, everything that you said could have been said at that staff meeting. 
Acts chapter 16. That's an external, isn't it? But Paul thought it's necessary. Um, so. I wonder how the Jews knew that he'd been speaking. <laughs> 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 I was thinking. I think, you know, I, I agree with actually what you said about the, the seriousness of Timothy's decision. But it was something, at least in theory, that could be changed, isn't it? But this chap that you're talking about now, do you know what I mean? There's nothing more painful than a chap in there of the 50s trying to be some trendy kid and not pulling mm-hmm. it off. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something, in a sense, Roger can verify this. sense people are already assuming that assuming that, that the answer is going to be to, um, to to take on certain cultural similarities like clothes and trainers and all the rest of it. But um, as I hope we'll see, really our, our, our response to this, it's it's, it's more in well, we'll 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 come on to that. But I think you might see it's 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 um it's more in the way we say things that we say. And, um, the actual it's part of our message. Yeah. Um. That's how it's going to apply in in, in Britain today. Um. Well, wait, 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 wait and see. Wait and see. Um, it's not. Uh, there's nothing about um, clothes uh, in the in this in this talk. But uh, come back a bit at the end. I'll try to. Yeah. I'll try. Sorry, I think you need to shut up, Bernie. Carry on, Dick. So, well, here come three cultural barriers in, uh, in Britain, modern Britain, that I would say stop the seed from really penetrating the soil. <coughs> I, I might be off target on these, uh, and I might have missed some really important ones. And again, maybe at the end, um, we, can, we can talk about whether there are other barriers that I'm not conscious of. And these are generalisations. But I really don't think that makes them worthless because you've got, you have got generalisations in the Bible. And here's my favourite example. Um, I mean, there, there, there must have been some people on Crete for whom this didn't apply. <laughs> <laughs> Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. <laughs> says the Apostle. There must have been at least one or two people on the whole island of Crete who wasn't, a, you know, wasn't an evil brute and a lazy gluttons. Um, but uh, Paul thought it was worth making that, that generalisation. He thought that would be uh, helpful. <laughs> so here are some generalisations which I think are cultural barriers making it hard for us to get seed into the soil. Number one, a, a lack of awareness of sin. A lack of awareness of sin. I'm not saying people don't understand the word sin, although that's true, they don't understand that word. What I'm saying is, even when you use other words, 
which uh, people do understand, they still won't relate to the general idea. Before I go further, yes, I do believe the Bible when it says that everyone has a conscience. I believe that. But um, just as atheists are, in these last few years, probably more effective, more successful in, in suppressing their knowledge of God, in pushing it down really deep, you know, they have got good at that in these past few years, atheists. In the same way, people are really effective these days at suppressing the truth that they are wrongdoers. That has been shoved deep down. Um, for, for much of history, it seems like you've got uh, younger sons and, and, and older sons. I'm thinking of the, the parable of the prodigal son. So for, for much of history pretty much any community would divide between the people who thought they were righteous and the people who knew they were doing all kinds of wrong things. Um, you, you, see that, uh, you see that in the, I've been reading a biography of John Bunyan recently. He, he, he knew he was in the category of someone doing wrong things with his, uh, with his life, in his community. But you see that very clearly in the Gospels. You've got the Pharisee types on the one hand, and then you've got the tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, and they all hang out together. And they all know that they're, that they're basically wrongdoers. They're, they're conscious of that. Um, well, my point is, nowadays in, Brit in Britain, pretty much everyone thinks they're in the, they're in the fairly good group. If you remember Jesus' words, it's not the healthy I've come to call, but the sick. But the sick. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. I've got the second half. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. He's saying people who think they're in the clear are not going to pay attention to his offer of medicine. Well, like I say, we're in a situation in, in Britain today where, where almost everyone thinks they're in the clear morally. And the reason why they think they're in the clear is because right and wrong have become very fuzzy categories. They really have. Let me give you some evidence to, um, to back this up. So this song was a massive hit. Um, really huge. It's on, the, um, it's on the soundtrack to Slumdog Millionaire. And um, just have a listen when I get it going. Here we go.
So it's um, all I want to do is take the I'm not playing those things so that we react by saying, shock, horror, isn't everyone awful? And uh, what, a, what a terrible world, we, world we're living in. I'm not interested in, in, in that at all. You know, we, that's where we've come from. That's what we are by, by nature. Um, that's not the point I'm trying to make. The, the, the point I'm trying to make is we need to realise that there is this general sense that, that right and wrong, they are, they are up in the air. I kissed, she, she sings, I kissed a girl, and I liked it. It felt so wrong. It felt so right. 
Um, I hope my boyfriend don't mind it. These things are, are up in the air. So you've got two massive songs. And uh, that's the only conclusion you can draw from, from both of them. And, um, and in case you're wondering whether songs like those really reflect reality, well, here's a hard statistic. 30% of the British public have been in a cohabiting relationship at some point. 36%. Uh, well, so in that kind of cultural context where more than a third of people have, have lived with someone who's not their husband or wife at some point, well, sex outside marriage is not wrong. It's just, when so many people are doing it, the idea that it might be wrong is, you might be able to awaken people's conscience to it if you had, if you had them sitting there and concentrating for an hour where you could go through scripture. But it would really take that long. It, it's shut, it, it's, the, the knowledge that that is wrong is just suppressed so deep when you've got 36% of, of Britain um, uh, living in a cohabiting relationship at some point. So the, the point is when morality is totally up for grabs, what that means is that everyone starts to think they're in the clear. Because everyone can have a go at justifying their own actions if there's no generally accepted standards. Uh, people still know the world is messed up, but they don't think they are personally part of the problem, whatever they might be up to in their lives. Now, we're still at the observation stage, and we're not yet applying this to our, our preaching. Um, I've only got ten minutes to go and speed up. But um, we will come on to, to try and apply that to our preaching in a bit. Second observation. Um, people do seem persuaded that science can give us a completely satisfying explanation of life, the universe, and everything. Uh, so there's no need to think in terms of creation and a creator. Absolutely no need. Again, um, don't misunderstand me. I'm not denying what Paul says in Romans. Deep down, everyone knows there is a creator. What I'm saying is that is now very deep down. On a day-to-day -day level, most people think it is probably true to say that there's nothing more to the universe than, than, than matter. Nothing more in all existence than, than just matter. Um, and um, that's not to say people won't claim to believe in God. Okay? But many people will, probably most people will. But it's more along the lines of yeah, I like to think that there's a God. In, in my world, there's a God. They're expressing their personal preference, not their response to reality. Do you see, do you see the difference? Um, believing in God, it's become a matter of personal taste. And people know that it's a matter of personal taste as they claim to believe in God. It's, it's no longer the unavoidable response to the reality all around us to believe in God. So... Um, the danger is that people won't um, connect the God that we're proclaiming with themselves and, and the world that they're living in. They, they won't make the link between the God that we're proclaiming and uh, the creator of this world, which is the world that they're living in. Um, if you think I'm overstating this, listen to... Um, I've got two examples, but I'll just use one because of um, time running out. This comes from a BBC book, um, Planet Earth, As You've Never Seen It Before. 
and BBC publicly funded. This is basically a national textbook, really. And uh, this is uh, what it says right near the beginning. The Big Bang, cosmic dust, gravity, nuclear fusion, electrostatic forces, sunlight, liquid water, a collision in space, a moon, a tilted axis, and in the end, a world that is uniquely fit for life. Consider our planet as a whole, and all the living, breathing consequences of plain good luck. From the moon, you look back at a solitary blue sphere wrapped in white clouds. Between the clouds are glimpses of green on the land. These are the colours of life, and as far as we know, our planet is unique. It alone supports life, and more than anything else, this seems to be down to chance. When the cosmic dice were thrown, our planet came out with a double six. So again, BBC book, that's, a that's, our, that's our national textbook. Now, what that means is on the level of objective fact, the message everywhere, the message which people are absorbing, is there is no God. It's just a throw of the cosmic dice. So when people say they believe in God, they're on a different level. It's the level of sort of subjective preference. I like to think there's a God. So the God that we're talking about, we, we need to explain what we mean by the God that we're talking about, because it's not necessarily the God that's in their heads, because they don't see any need for a creator of this reality. That's the point. Now, let's move on to the third observation, which springs out of the one we've just been thinking about. Um, people are convinced that um, all religions are equally valid. Qualify that a bit, all moderate forms of religion. People are convinced all, all moderate forms of religion are, are equally valid. So here's how point two and point three connect together. Um, if belief in God is on the subjective level, as we've just seen, if it's just a matter of personal preference, then we're all free to vote for our personal choice of God. It's a kind of um, religious version of I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. I suppose it would be um, I'm a divinity, get me out of here. When we say that Christianity is the, the only way to God, that is not heard as a truth claim. It's heard as someone who has their personal preference, trying to make their personal preference everyone else's personal preference. Well, how, how dare they? That's so closed-minded. That's so ultra-traditionalist. That's racist, ultimately. Well, um, in the light of those observations, here are some um, do's and don'ts for... Uh, evangelistic speaking just in the last five minutes or so. Uh, we've had the meat of the talk, really, those cultural barriers that I've just been talking about. And um, if you agree that those are in place in, in people's hands and thinking, then uh, you, you might respond to them in, in, in slightly different ways from the ways I'm about to, to suggest. Remember, we're in the area of tweaking. I'm not saying we change the core of our message. We've got to keep it, just like Paul told Timothy, to keep the message. We are in the area of tweaking, of packaging. It's just these tweaks really make a big difference. This packaging really helps the seed to penetrate the soil. Um, 
for example, yesterday Paul gave us a great tweak, which I'd never come across before. Um, his line, if you remember, we hurt the people, we love the most. He said he found that a useful line in preaching today. We hurt the people, we love the most. Well, that's just one line. It's just a tweak, just one line. But, do you see how that line bypasses the whole issue of what's right and what's wrong, what's in the right category, what's in the wrong category, which is up in the air and up for grabs? It just sort of cuts through all of that by saying we hurt the people we love the most. So that people know, know they're guilty. It's a, it's a great line, and I'll, I'll use it a lot, I think, from now on. It's a great way of dealing with that cultural barrier. It's just a tweak. Very powerful. Like I say, you, you may have your own suggestions, but here are some uh, do's and don'ts which I've come up with. So do give people a rich presentation of Jesus Christ. Do give people a rich presentation of Jesus Christ. According to, uh, to John 1, he's God's message in the flesh. He's the Bible come to life. Well, I take it that the word become flesh is the most powerful form of revelation possible. You're not only hearing the Bible every time he speaks, because he's speaking as God. He is God. You're also seeing God in action as he just interacts with people in all that he does, as he lives out a human life in first century Israel, it's, uh, it's the most powerful form of, of, of revelation possible. When we were hearing from, from John, I found that so helpful earlier, where you've got the, the, uh, the other countries who have idols, which don't speak. They've got the form, but uh, no words. Then you've got Israel, no form, but they've got words. When Jesus is here, when, when, when God is sent down into this world, you've got form and words together. So, we give people their best shot at belief in God. As a reality, not just as a sort of, I like to think, there's a, as, as, as a reality who is there. We give people their best shot at belief in God when we proclaim God as man as set out in the Bible's record of his time on earth. The more people see of Jesus, the more likely they are to believe in God, the more the exclusivity of Christianity will, will just make sense. It won't be so offensive, because people will see, well, well yeah, clearly it's the only faith with Jesus at the centre. So, yeah, that, that's why it's the only way to, to, to God. It just becomes much more natural, much more obvious, much less uh, offensive and provocative. So give people a rich presentation of, of Jesus Christ. And, I mean, one, one advantage of, of speaking to, uh, to unchurched people is the stories about Jesus will be very fresh and interesting. Let's make the most of them. It's come out more than once this week that uh, the, the, the Gospels are really a, a great place to be in for um, evangelistic speaking. Those Gospel stories. Uh, the second one, I will qualify this in a bit, but don't try to build before you've knocked down. Don't try to build before you've knocked down. Paul says, we demolish arguments, we knock down arguments, and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Um, 
that there are powerful arguments for the existence of God. Um, there are powerful arguments for the reliability of the Gospels. Um, let's use these to clear away the clutter in people's heads, these false objections getting in the way. Now, I'm not saying that we need to have a whole series of apologetic talks before we get on to the Gospel. Remember, we're in the area of tweaks. If we've been asked to set out the Gospel, if we've been given a decent length of time, if that's the task before us, then we've got to get the core content across. What I'm saying is, it's possible to include just a few lines to try to persuade people that there is a God. And if you've got 20 minutes to set out the gospel, well, you've got your core content. You can spend a, you can spend a few minutes saying, I know people these days say that, uh, that there is no God. And uh, we're always hearing people on the telly informing us that there is no God. Well, I, I don't know how they make their heads believe that. You know, how, how, how raw chance can bring, a, can bring a pearl of a world into being with its own lighting supply, its own heating supply, its own running water, you know, all the elements embedded in, in the earth, everything that's needed for, uh, for human civilization there, I don't know how they persuade themselves that raw chance can bring all of that into being. Beats me. You're, you're flagging up that you know what people are hearing on TV, and you're giving an, an answer. Raw chance just can't deliver that. <clears throat> Um, it's, not a, it's not a whole talk, it's just a tweak, it's packaging. Um, do you use testimonies? Now, that might, it, this might sound a bit sort of contradictory, paradoxical, but um, someone's testimony will, bizarrely enough, counteract the view that Christianity is just a matter of personal taste. The reason why I say that is, when you get someone speaking about what Jesus has done for them, then that is so obviously a kind of life-changing, massive, transformative experience that people can't put it in the category of, oh, he prefers Weetabix to crunchy nut cornflakes. It's just obviously something bigger than that. And so they, it just um, makes them curious. And they, and they listen in. Um, but... Please make sure, if you're getting someone to give their testimony, or if you're giving your own testimony, uh, you know, make sure you or they really have had a wonderful and transformative, <laughs> transformational experience. Um, you, you know, otherwise, it will probably do more harm than good. And make sure it's coherent and well-prepared. I mean, it's, it's obvious, but that needs to be, uh, needs to be done. I mean, authenticity is a, does seem to be a really big thing in, um, in, in, in today's culture. This is Tesco's peas. Uh, on the back, there's Rex. Rex Allen. Little photo. Our pea selector, Rex Allen, certainly knows his peas. <laughs> Over the last 22 years, he's been busy working with the best growers in the UK. 22 years. Sourcing peas for Tesco. Rex thinks the peas he selects and produces for Tesco are the best. And so do we. But we can always do better. So in 2004, we set Rex the challenge 
to find the finest P for Tesla. <laughs> Rex tells us that the, our finest P's are... Sorry, it goes on and on. <laughs> 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 why, why, can't we, why can't we just... Why can't Tesco tell us that? Why do we have to have Rex and a photo? Because people don't really trust te- Tesco. They don't, they don't trust organisations, and, and, but they trust a person with a face. There's just an authenticity there. Otherwise, why, why put Rex on the, on the packaging? I should have told you, well, he's my uncle. <laughs> I've, got, I've got nothing against him. Oh, I thought you had. <laughs> oh, I bought his peas. <laughs> Speed on. Um, um, I, don't have, I don't have too much more to say. Uh, yeah, don't use jargon without explaining, which might seem obvious, and I'm sure you've had that before. But we just need to be aware that things that we don't recognise as jargon are jargon to people. So the cross. If you make a reference to the cross, totally over people's heads. They don't. They really don't know what you're talking about. Well, some people will, from general knowledge. But that's not really jargon to us, the cross. It's, it's not a long word, it's not a complicated word. The, the, the concept is so familiar to us, but it's, people just uh, won't get what you're talking about. Um, day of judgment. That just sounds like, oh, that's a day when people get really, you know, when... <sighs> judgment just has... Why can't we have day of, God's day of justice? God's day of justice. So we're comfortable with Day of Judgment because we're so used to it. Um, but if people are hearing that for the first time, if you can use justice, justice is a much more appealing thing in, in Britain today than judgment. Um, instead of the Gospels, what are they? It's the four biographies of Jesus that we've got in the Bible. Um, and there are lots of other examples that, that we could think of. Um, it's the point is, it's not just propitiation and justification and regeneration that, that fall into the jargon category. Sin as well is an obvious example. A um, couple more. Do acknowledge the strangeness of the message. Do acknowledge it. Acknowledge that it sounds strange. It's very disarming, very winsome and appealing when a speaker correctly guesses what's on the mind of a cynical unbeliever who is, who is present. It shows that we're not. It shows we're not head in the sands. Heads, you know what I mean. It shows we, we don't have our head in the sand. We're not ultra traditionalists, unaware of, of changing attitudes. We're not relics from uh, from the 1850s. So um, here are some examples. You might be thinking, why can't we just stay neutral on God? Second guessing where they where they're coming from. Sort of. Disarming. Um, you might be thinking, uh, so, so what is it that makes belief in Jesus as the Son of God any different from belief in Santa Claus? Um, I know what you're thinking. Uh, I've just said the kind of thing that terrorists say. It's just, it's just disarming. It shows we're coming from where they're coming from, that, we, that there isn't this great barrier. It's bringing down barriers. Um, and lastly, don't forget the persuasive power of illustration. Now, uh, we're used to thinking of illustration as um, really useful 
uh, light relief. And, and you know, let's, not sif- let's not sniff at that. <clears throat> we need some air in our talks. We're used to think of, e- of illustrations as really helpful for, for communicating a point. Um, you know, or a, a concept. Most people will only grab hold of a concept if, if there's an illustration, a colorful illustration to, to, to go with it, just the way our, our minds seem to work. But there's another aspect to illustrations. They can actually persuade us to, 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 to take on board what would otherwise be unpalatable. Um, I, I, um, on a, I was on a holiday recently with, um, with, with some friends. My friend was trying to feed his baby daughter. She just wasn't having it. Chicken and cauliflower mash. It looked pretty gross. Um, she just wasn't eating it. But then he started smothering some of this posh Ella's Organics fruit mush on top. And uh, she was taking every spoonful. And that was on top of the chicken and cauliflower. So he was getting her to take on board something unpalatable by, by smothering it with something that she, that she was familiar with. Um, and illustrations have a persuasive power that they, they help people to, to, to accept, to take on board something that they otherwise would be very unwilling to take on board. And this is where I think we do need, especially if you're speaking to unchurched people a lot, we need to be watching the films they're watching, listening to the music they're, 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 they're listening to, so that we can quote from those films. Because often films and music will make similar kinds of points to the points that we might want to, to make. Like, um, there's a Coldplay song, Am I a Part of the Cure or Am I Part of the Disease? Am I a Part of the Cure or Am I Part of the Disease? Well, oh, they're thinking, he, he listens to the same music that I listen to. That's how bring down a barrier. They're also hearing, oh, Chris Martin is even a bit unsure. Even Chris Martin is unsure on, you know, is he part of the cure, part of the disease? Well, maybe it is. Maybe I am part of the disease of this world. Persuasive power of um, illustrations and, and quotes. Paul was talking about the value of uh, reading a newspaper. I've got to give the last thing I'm going to say. Um, I've got to give a talk to teenagers in a month's time. And um, I'm going to be listening to Radio 1 between now and then. Um, Just to see if there's a a quote I can pull off, just to try and get in the heads of these teenagers. Um, Break down the cultural barriers and get the seed into, uh, into the soil. Should we pray? Sorry, there isn't time for any questions to come back. Father, we, we pray that we would have your love for the lost poured out into our hearts. We feel conscious of how hard our hearts can be, how frosty and sealed up against people. Please melt our hearts towards people. And so would we listen to them and walk alongside them and join with them in their culture and become a Jew to the Jew and a Greek to the Greek so that we might um, communicate more effectively and get past the barriers and get your gospel seed um, firmly embedded in the soil of their lives. We pray for your help in this. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.